You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to have you here as we're in still this sermon series on identity. And we're looking at today a very unique a unique situation on identity. So we're covering the Gospel of John, and as I've mentioned before, the Gospel of John has more one-on-one dialogues than any of the other Gospels, where Jesus is interacting with different individuals along the way, and many of them are dealing with the question of identity and where you find your identity, the source of meaning and purpose, and who you are in life. And today... We are at a very unique one with Pontius Pilate. Uh, It's not an intimate conversation, I would dare say. It's an interrogation that is going on with Pilate. um, But the question is, who's getting interrogated? Let's read about this. It is, well, first of all, I want to let you know that some people do uh, find that... um, Pontius Pilate comes across as kind of a weak character for some. They, they kind of make him, well, he's the guy who got caught in the middle and didn't know what to do. I don't think that's necessarily the best understanding. David Regensberger writes this. He said, there is virtually universal consent. Pilate is seen in John as more or less a sympathetic figure, a man who wants to be fair, who would gladly acquit Jesus, but who, through the lack of resolve and susceptibility to political pressure, all too easily becomes the tool of the Jews and their malevolence, okay? Malevolence. I always say that word wrong. Malevolence, okay? I don't think that's the case. After studying this a bit more, there are reasons to believe that Pilate is truly an effective politician, cunning, Brutal, blunt, and he gets what he wants in the end in this situation. By the way, he corners the Jews that come and present Jesus before him in this situation, and he gets them to say something that at, you just read it, and you go like, oh, that's fine. But they, they say, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> and you have to understand, in that day and age, no Jewish person would ever say that willingly. They would say, we have no king but God. But he got the Jewish leaders to betray themselves and to pledge their allegiance to Caesar. That's more than almost anybody else had done in that day. That's power. That's effectiveness. And he also does show brute force and know how to use it. He possessed the power of what's called the imperium, and that means that he has supreme administrative power over the whole province, both military and judicial authority. So he's not in a position of weakness when he meets Jesus by any means. In fact, I found this interesting. When um, I've studied in the past, you know, I've read through the Gospels, and I see that when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, I usually think that the contingent of soldiers there what, a dozen or so? I mean, how many do they really need? Jesus isn't going to do too much. But what's fascinating is in the Gospel of John, the word that's used for the contingents of soldiers is uh, spiro, spiro, and that word means between 200 and 600 soldiers. 
And in addition to that, Judas brought his own temple guards with him <laughs> from the temple and the priesthood. So you're dealing with this gi giant group of people who are trying to arrest Jesus. That's a show of force. That was like, quash this while we can. Make sure nothing happens. Put a lid on this and make sure everybody else knows anybody who's going to try to be an insurrectionist or to defy Rome in any way will be treated the same. So now, with that in view, we've got a powerful pilot and a humble, weak Jesus. Let's read our text, which is in John chapter 18. That they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? We could go on longer in this text, but I think this is going to have enough, <laughs> okay? You know how long my sermons are anyways. Um, and um, we're going to cover these three points that is, first of all, power as an identity, an alternative to power, and the transformation of power. First of all, power as an identity. And you can look this up, as, by the way. It's in the U version of the Bible app. Um, the notes for today are there. Now, in the Roman imperial world, law and justice were tools. They weren't an end in themselves, by the way. They were used whatever way in order to preserve the power and control and the tax revenue for the ruling elite, okay? So don't look at this trial before Pilate as if the goal of it is to prove whether Jesus was innocent or guilty, or it's all about power and staying in control. The real question being asked, Matthew Skinner writes, is, has this person, Jesus, done anything that endangers social welfare or threatens Roman values? That's the only question that Pilate has before him. He only cares about that. He doesn't care about Jesus. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about fairness. He doesn't care about innocence or guilt. He only cares about, is this guy going to cause me trouble? So this isn't a trial, it's more of a show trial at best. 
And when Jesus is, uh, is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate isn't really asking a theological question at all. He's just asking, are you a political leader? And are you trying to defy Rome? And are you trying to cause an insurrection here? Will you challenge my status, my comfort level, my position, and what I've banked my whole life on? Because political power is power that gets people to do things, sometimes positively, but often you just pass laws, you enforce, you make people behave through whatever coercion you've got. And there is coercion behind any government, any political situation at all. Sometimes it's just sanctions. Other times it's financial penalties. Other times it's physical restraint. Ultimately, the government has the sword, as the Bible would say. And there is, according to the Bible, legitimate use for power for the sake of trying to keep things at bay from chaos and confusion. But in Pilate's instance here, when power or politics becomes your identity, where you find, and your power and your position are so important, all of a sudden power is no longer about for the sake of others. It's about just staying in power, keeping your power. And if this guy is in the way of that, he's out of the way. In uh, 1991, uh, Vaclav Havel, who was the president of the Czech, uh, Czech Republic at that time, he accepted the Sonning Prize for contribution to European civilization. And Vaclav Havel was an interesting president of a country because he was an intellectual and a writer at first and a dissident. And in receiving this award, he kind of pulls back the curtain on what politics can be about. And he questions even himself, which I think is a good thing. He writes this, why is it that people long for pol political power and why, when they have achieved it, are they so reluctant to give it up? Have you noticed that, by the way? Yeah. I think I just saw something, I, and maybe this is bad, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just saw an, an, a senator who's going to run for re-election, and he's 81 years old. Okay, we just can't give it up, can we? <laughs> I know, there are pastors that just can't give up the pulpit. Okay, I get it. It's not me. <laughs> I am so, you know, well, I've got years yet, but uh, anyways. He goes on, in the first place, people are driven into politics by ideas about a better way to organize society, by faith in certain values or ideals, by the impeccable or dubious, and the irresistible desire to fight for those ideals and turn them into reality. That's kind of the positive things. But then he says a couple other things. In the second place, they are probably motivated by the natural longing every human has for self-affirmation. Is it possible to imagine a more attractive way to affirm your own existence and its importance than that offered by political power. Look at how important I am. Ever feel like politicians, that's what it's really all about? In the third place, he says, many people long for political power and are so reluctant to part with it because of the wide range of perks that are a necessary part of political life, even under the most democratic of conditions. Man, I can't give up all these perks. 
Here's what he has to say. I have never met a politician who can admit to the world or even to himself that he was running for office only because he wanted to affirm his own importance or because he wanted to enjoy the perks that come with political power. And yet, hmm, Pilate, I think, why in the world did he want the position he had? Because of the perks. Because of how it affirmed his importance in this world. Because of the privileged lifestyle. Because of the sense of greatness. An identity that feels secure. Look, I'm strong because I'm with Rome, who's the strongest, most powerful government in this world. They had created a narrative somewhat false, the Pax Romana, the only reason they had peace was by conquering people, enslaving them, etc. It wasn't about wonderful, beautiful ideals. Maybe that's why Henry Kissinger had once said, you know, I'm sorry, this, uh, but power is the greatest aphrodisiac. Have you ever heard of that? It was a famous quote by him. It basically is saying that power is powerful. And politics is a way towards that power. It's a saccharine substitute, though, for having a true, solid identity. And maybe that's why it's so powerful, because people don't like the fact that they feel weak, that they feel insignificant, that they've been harmed or hurt or feel marginalized. And so what do they do? They go into politics. Adele... Alberg Calhoun wrote this. This is a beautiful thing. We used it actually at Wednesday night at FGCU on identity. She said, each of us has a beautiful true self inside of us. It is God's gift to us. But many of us can hardly take this in. Somewhere life taught us that our true self wasn't welcome or safe or wanted. Consequently, we learned to hide our true self in its place, we constructed a false self. The false self strives to cobble together an identity from secondary things, reputation, success, status, family, jobs, health. And I would add in that list, power and politics, probably one of the greatest ultimate substitutes for a true self. Power and politics are a cover-up for a lot of our feelings of insecurities and weakness and shame and unimportance. We are all feeling hollow and empty inside, and we have to fill it with something. And the quest for glory, the significance, how I can make a difference in this world, sounds so good, but underneath it, it's really ego-driven so often. And politics in the United States has not just taken on a little. It's become a religion for many. Have you noticed? And it's identity politics people complain about, but actually it's politics that's become the identity of people. That's the problem. It's who I am is this cause or whatever. Boy, that can be dangerous. Pilate is one like that. So Jesus says, Pilate, I'm not, I'm not about this. I give an alternative. He actually stands before Pontius Pilate, though on the outside Pilate is strong and Jesus is weak. The tables are really turned. Jesus is the one who has the secure identity of being the son of God, the beloved of the father, who can stand before one of the most powerful people in all of Palestine at the time and speak truth. 
So Jesus gives what we have as point two, an alternative to this kind of power identity. He puts it this way, John 18, 36 to 37. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is saying two different things here, I think, that we have to understand. First of all, he's saying, I'm not a political leader. I am not a king like that. I don't play games with power. If that were the case, my servants would have fought for this. And we would be in a revolution against Rome. But rather, my kingdom is not from this world. It doesn't act like this world. It is different than all the other world systems. My kingdom will not move forward through political power. And this might be a little strong for you, but it's true. I believe it is. No one is ever to wage a war in the name of Jesus. No one should ever be ruling any country in the name of Jesus and saying, this is why, you know, this is what a Christian government looks like, and we're going to make you live this way because of. Jesus is saying, I don't want my servants to do that. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, didn't that, hasn't that happened before? Yes, it has. It has happened. And it hasn't worked out well. Now, the only place in the, United, in the world today where Christianity is fully in retreat happens to be in the place where this was tried for about a thousand years. It was called Christendom, and it was in Europe. And you will find there, because of state churches and state sanctions and the, even the power of the sword, it is the one place in all the world where Christianity has shrunk to almost nothing. But if you look to Asia, Africa, South America, it is growing. And even in the United States, we've got some touch and go situations. <laughs> the last, but what I have seen, and I think you have seen too, is how when politics and religion get together, how damaging it often is to the Christian faith. Timothy Keller put it this way about a Christendom in Europe and then kind of making a blanket statement. He says, the masses were alienated. The church has lost power. And when the church gets into bed with power, it loses its genius. So Jesus, first of all, is saying, I'm not that kind of a king. But then again, he says, I am a king. I am a king. My kingdom is not advanced through force or politics or coercion of any form, but I am a king, and my kingdom is advanced through speaking truth. I'm here to change this whole world and the way people live through the truth of the gospel. And I know some people would say, well, it shouldn't be, Christianity shouldn't be involved in politics, but what they want then, often as the alternative, is Christianity shouldn't be involved in anything. 
Just keep it to yourself as a private little feeling of peace and tranquility and don't bother the world with anything. And Jesus will not have that as the alternative either here in this text. Jesus speaks truth right here at the center of the power in Palestine. His kingdom grows through the spread of the truth of the gospel, a truth of God's love and God's grace. Rodney Stark, a Christian historian, but a historian of early Christianity, puts it this way of how Christianity, through the way that the church served, the way the church gave, the way that Christians lived in society without trying to legislate, without trying to run for office, without being in power, how they changed the entire Roman world in just a couple hundred years. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offers a new basis for social solidarity. And to the cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. It's the only way things actually change in society. It really is the only way. And political power is always downstream from the change that happens because people accept the truth and see truth lived out like the way Jesus did. So Jesus comes to this world to speak truth, but speaking truth is costly. Pilate does have power over Jesus. Now, it was only a power, and Jesus even says, you only have it because <laughs> you were given that by my Father. But Jesus still stands before Pilate and before the religious leaders before in the trials, and he speaks truth to all of them and accepts the consequences of that. In fact, embraces the consequences because he came into this world specifically because of all the false selves, all the sinful, rebellious ways that human beings have tried to organize and push each other around and tell each other what to do. And he takes it all upon himself as he dies upon the cross. He embraces it in order to love us. He speaks truth so that he can become the truth and to give himself as our identity. Adele Alberg Calhoun writes, Our truest identity can never be something we accomplish, even earn or prove on our own. It's a gift we receive from Jesus. It's not something we earn through performance. It's what we are given. We are treasured by the Lord of the universe, and this is why we can feel good about ourselves. And the truth of what Jesus Christ does and how he lives and how he serves and how he gave his life as a ransom for many is what transforms power then into something else. It is not used for the sake of keeping power. It is used for the sake of empowering others to serve others, to give things away. The transformation of it all, our third point. So Pilate's the interrogator, right? But have you noticed, if you read through that again, 
doesn't come quick. Jesus turns the tables on him. He starts asking the questions. And the script is kind of flipped the way through it. Pilate's perplexed, and Pilate is challenged. Pilate is the one who's really on trial here. And the question that is before Pilate is this. Are you going to follow the way of power, or are you going to follow the way of truth? You know, when Pilate responds, well, what is truth? That was not really a philosophical question for him. He wasn't trying to figure out how do you ascertain what's really true in life. Yeah, he might have been cynical about it, but really what he's saying is what value is truth? What good is truth? And Jesus stands before him as Pilate's truth. I don't know, this might not come across in the text, but I would dare say Jesus is loving Pilate throughout this whole discussion. He wants Pilate to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants Pilate to embrace the truth rather than the false self of power and, and invincibility that he thinks that he has. He doesn't. He's not calling on Pilate to forsake his position as the, the governor of uh, Judea. But he does want him to understand the limits of political power. You can't really use it to bolster your sense of self, not for long. It'll never be long enough. It'll never be good enough. Power needs to be transformed by the truth of the gospel so that we realize the temptation that power can be, and that power is always used for the sake of truth rather than truth for the sake of power. Vaclav Havel in his speech says this at the end. He says, politics is an area of human endeavor that places greater stress on moral sensitivity, on the ability to reflect critically on oneself, on genuine responsibility, on taste and tact, on the capacity to empathize with others, on a sense of moderation, on humility. It is a job for modest people, for people who cannot be deceived. Oh, my goodness. And yet I think he's trite. It's like everything else, politics is a job really for servants, people who will follow humbly this Jesus and then live in response to him. It takes somebody who's transformed so that power does not become the addiction that it was for Pilate. Now, we don't know the rest of the story of Pontius Pilate's life too much. We know a few things from the historian named Josephus. And um, from that, um, uh, Dr. Paul Meyer wrote a book called Pontius Pilate. And he um, creates kind of this historical novel of Pilate and his wife and how through the life this, this trial haunted, just haunted him until he came to acknowledge at the end of his life that Jesus was the truth and that his whole political kabuki theater that he had been doing for years, trying to display how important and virile and together and how the position that he was trying to hold on to was just a facade. Would only hope that that would have happened. I don't know if it did. But I do know this, that power does not win out in the end. 
It's the love of Jesus Christ that does. Force doesn't claim victory. Death doesn't, doesn't win the battle. Death gets defeated by this Savior. He is a king like no other. He is a king of hearts. He is enthroned on a piece of wood. He is crowned with thorns. He's pushed out of the world, and yet he reigns over the entire world at the same time. And every leader like Pontius Pilate, every emperor, every Caesar, every dictator, every president, every monarch, every general has all gone away. Every kingdom falls, but the kingdom of God remains forever. So the big question today just like with Pilate for each one of us, is which one will it be, truth or power? Which one takes preeminence? The truth is, when you are in the presence of Jesus Christ, you have an identity in him that is so amazingly powerful that nothing can compete with it. Maybe it's time to drop your guard. Stop playing power games and realize who you are because of Jesus. As Adele Alberg Calhoun says, in the presence of Christ, we lay down the weight of having to manage an image. An identity rooted in Christ has a restful center. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you see how politics has become religion for many in our world and society today and how our identity has been so attached to causes and slogans and personalities. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for finding too much importance in these things when our identity is in you. When you, Lord Jesus, offer to us yourself and the truth, the truth about our own weakness and failings and sinfulness and rebellion, but the truth of your love that no matter what, nothing will separate us from your love because you have loved us through death, through resurrection, and for eternity. And you will love us even when we've kind of been all over the charts, Lord, when we've failed, when we've messed up, when we have gone off in our own directions, Lord, you keep bringing us back. You keep drawing us to you. You keep loving us. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that we would become such a community of transformed individuals that our identity is so secure in you that whatever position we're in, whatever political power we may have, whatever privileges that we have received in life, whatever gifts that we have, they are used to glorify you and serve others and not just keep ourselves in our positions and power. But we empower others, Lord, that that, that is the transformation that takes place. We do pray, Lord, for our nation. We do pray for... Um, uh, just our, our political leaders, we pray, Lord, that they would, instead of being centered on their positions and their authority and um, that their identity is cobbled together by whatever, that they can rest in you too. Because you want everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth from kings to peasants, from presidents to paupers. Lord, we know that. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the king of our hearts, that you are a king like no other, a king who served us, <laughs> who gave up everything, 
to place us on a throne. We thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.